turn to Exodus 32, the golden calf. We've been talking about idolatry the whole service so far. I know you are all disappointed that we don't have more building plans. No architectural drawings here uh, from the tabernacle. We move on to something different. I would just say, be encouraged. We'll come back to those in just a couple of weeks. Just kidding. All right, Exodus 32. I'm going to read this with a little bit of pace, so just know that. This is God's word for you today. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then 
Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp! But he, Moses said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made. He burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Wow. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, each of you. Kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one 
that Aaron made. Father, we thank you for your word. Give life and light to our hearts. We ask that we might believe that our love for you would grow. For Christ's sake, amen. Think back to the last time you moved. Yeah, it's awful. I know. You're like, oh, why do I have to think about this? I hate moving. I hate thinking about moving. And you think about the process of moving, though, and you can kind of track the progress of a move by where the boxes are located. They start in the bedroom, and those will hopefully get unpacked, and then they move to the, like, the extra rooms, and then they move to hopefully the garage or the attic, and then by year 10, they disappear in theory, right? It, it only takes a decade. If you move across town, uh, you can also track the progress of a move uh, by your navigation skills. This is actually the part that I'm in. I'm moving to Fort Mill to Rock Hill, not that much of a difference, but I, I never drove in kind of southwest Rock Hill. And you can track the progress of the move by how, how you, you navigate. You know, when you first get there, it's, everything's GPS. You know, okay, Google, take me to the you know, pizza place that is less than half a mile from my house because I can't find it, even though I can see it from my driveway. Uh, and then you slowly begin to get more courage. I'm at the point now, after uh, six months or so, where I, I feel like I have enough confidence to navigate around Rock Hill. The problem is my confidence surpasses my ability. <laughs> and I, with great regularity, look up and go, where am I? <laughs> No, seriously, where am I? I have no idea where I am. I did not know this place existed in Rock Hill. I've lived in this area for 12 years, and I have no idea where this place is. I did this yesterday on the way home from Piedmont Hospital. I have no idea where I am. I didn't know this place. It was a neat intersection. I couldn't find it again to show it to you if I tried. I can't tell you how many times I, I, I look around and go, how on earth did I get to this place? I never thought I would have made it here. How did I even get here? And the amazing thing is, is if you actually backtrack it, it's very rare that like I made some like tragic, you know, terrible error where I needed to go north and I got on 77 South and ended up halfway to Columbia. It's never that. It's that I just got just barely off. And that just barely off 20 minutes later is quite off by the end. Passages like this are a little bit hard because when we get to read this chapter, it, it almost reads like one of the caricatures they do at Carowinds, you know, where they tick, you know, pick your most defining feature. My, he has a large head and huge ears. And then they turn a caricature, you know, when the head's like gigantic and the ears are, you know, Dumbo size. And that's what you get. It, it reads like that in some sense where we struggle with this one because we go, you know, I've honestly been tempted to do a lot of things. I'll let you know a little secret. I've never been tempted to worship a golden calf. I'm suspecting most of you are in a similar situation. You've seen a lot of things, been tempted to do a lot of things. You never have been tempted to worship a golden calf. So already there's a little bit of a disconnect with the text like this. And there's a little bit of sometimes, I hate to say it, there's a little bit of judgmentalism that sneaks in. Where we go... Yeah, but have you read of those idiots? Have you read of those bozos? I mean, my goodness, how foolish did they have to be? 
The problem is, these folks, much like my driving, they made one small wrong turn. And as you make a small wrong turn, you drive that road enough time, you end up in York like I did two days ago. Don't know how I made it to York. Not really sure. Wasn't headed that direction. I was supposed to be going northeast. I ended up in York. We're actually going to see in the text here, there's kind of two mistakes that are made along the way, really. Two mistakes that get them that little bit of that, that off, that little bit of a turn in the wrong direction that, given enough time, ends up worshiping a golden cow. The first one is there, actually, it's in, in the very first verse, when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down. It's intriguing how, again, you think about, it's so hard to imagine, like, how did they do this? <laughs> They're at the base of the scary mountain where the scary God has just told them to go worship. This is the God who just, you know, killed Egypt, who has led them, you know, from the plagues. He's led them by water and the rock and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He is the mighty God. Takes them to the base of the mountain and says, hey, we're going to, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and here's my covenant. And they've already said, remember the last time we heard the people talk? What did they say? Yes, we'll do everything you say. That's the last words we heard out of these people's mouths. We'll do everything you say, God. You're our God, we're your people. And from that moment, you remember, they come back down and Joshua goes halfway up the mountain, Moses goes all the way up the mountain, and it's been just under six weeks at this point. And it actually makes sense, really, if you think about it. What do they think has happened to Moses? I mean, it's snarky how they say it. Eh, this Moses guy, we don't really care about him. What's even happened to him anyway? There's implied answer here. They know what's happened to him. They know he's dead. I mean, everything else that goes on this mountain dies if they touch it. You have to kill it. What happened to Moses? He went before this God. He died. He was, he was you know, a fool in his own right. And now he's dead too. And so they bring this question. It's implied in the text. We hear it all the time. If you, if you follow sports, it's said all of the time. If you follow uh, the industrial world, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? What have you done to improve my situation? Said differently, it's the old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder, dot, 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 for someone else. It's the same kind of truth that's happened here. They've been sitting at the base of the mountain for a month and a half. Moses is gone. They think he's dead. And so the people begin to go, what has this God done for me lately? And the mind begins to wander. You get tired. You know how it is when I read the really long genealogy passages. You pay attention to the first two names. And then after that, let's be honest, you're just listening to see if I mess up. Their mind has begun to wander and they've begun to stray back to their old values, to their old ideals. They've, they've begun to think in the language of Egypt. The ESV translation in this section is fantastic. It's love. I mean, they capture it very, very well. The people get round Aaron. It's not a friendly like, hey, let's have a group think together. Can we have a brainstorm? We'll hold hands. We'll sing. That is not what they do. They accost him. 
rudely, maybe threatening, perhaps he thinks his life's in danger, and they come up with this, I paid, Let's, we're going to do this thing, make for us, and they capture it correctly, gods who shall go before us. It's plural. It's important. See, what they're doing here is they're not just totally forsaking the God that has brought them there. That's the language they exactly use. In fact, actually, what they're highlighting is, look, we had one God that led us here, and we had another God that preserved us in Egypt. You have the Canaanite Baals, which their symbol was a calf. You have the Egyptian gods, two of the biggies had the symbol of the calf. One had the horns, the other had the face. They're not turning away from Jehovah. They're just asking a better question. What have you done for me lately? You haven't done anything in six weeks. Six weeks. I mean, come on, God. What kind of God are you? Before we go any further, it'd probably be a little bit appropriate for us to step on our own toes before we kind of judge all of the Israelites here and say, wow, those fools. If we're going to be honest and say, do we ever ask that question of our God? I mean, I'll put it differently. When you have difficult times, how long does it take you before you get bored of them and you begin to question God's goodness? Two days? Three days? I guess the answer really depends on how bad it is. Usually the really annoying ones are the ones where it's like, I have a paper cup between my fingers. Ah, is God good anymore? I don't understand. I mean, I make fun of us, but the reality is it's our story. Have we take God's visible blessings away from directly in front of our face? We begin to question who God is and forget how good he is to us. It's amazing. I mean, you think about it, this is one of the most fun things of being a parent is when the children are really young and they don't have object permanence. Do you know what that is? It, they realize that an object is actually a permanent object. I, I loved doing that when the kids were little because you could hide it from them and they thought it stopped existing. <laughs> ah, my ice cream stopped existing. Like, no, it's back. Ah, you know, and you create things out of nothing. Pull it out of my jacket. I created ice cream ex nihilo out of nothing. I've made ice cream. It was great fun to watch. But it is amazing how often that's how we are with our God. Where if it's not directly, the blessings are not directly in front of our face. The second they're pulled away, we forget that he's good. We forget that he cares for us. We forget that he watches over us. And we're like, hey, maybe other options. What other gods are? How can I take care of myself? I've done a pretty bang up job this far. It's important that we don't judge the Israelites too hard, particularly when it's something we do all the time. The second wrong turn they make, it's really Aaron's mistake. The people have come and gathered around him, and they're, they're, they're bad apples at this point. We have to acknowledge that. I mean, he even explains it to Moses at the end, and Moses doesn't disagree with this part. He's like, Moses, you know how bad they are. Moses is like, fair enough, and they are. I get it. They've gathered around him. They're threatening him. Make us this God that we can worship. And he's like, oh, you're going to kill me. Okay, fine. Has them take off the marks of 
the, the earrings, there's something about the earrings specifically that connected to the re- religious worship. We're not entirely sure. Throws them all in. He probably took wood and made a wooden calf and then coated, you know, um, gold on the outside, most likely, is what we all commentators think, is it's uh, this coated um, calf that he then used tools to kind of inscribe and add details to. The interesting thing, though, is Aaron's response. Verse four and a half, they see it and the people say, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. My goodness, that is almost verbatim, the beginning to the Ten Commandments, which remember those are the last words they've heard from their God. So Aaron, like a bit of common sense is like, that's the kind of heresy where like the ground is going to open up and eat you. We have to have a better answer than that. So notice what Aaron says in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, it gave him the heebie-jeebies, made him squeamish. So he built an altar before it so we can worship. This is how we're supposed to worship. Tomorrow shall be a feast day to thee. Notice how your ESV puts that, L-O-R-D, all capitals. This is the covenant name of God. This is not generic God. This is No, we're going to have a feast day for, for Baal or for the Astros or for Ra or for Hoth or any other. No, this is we're going to have a feast day to the God of the Bible. And verse 6, the people get up early and they offer burnt offerings like they're supposed to. And they offer peace offerings like they're supposed to. They sit down to eat and drink maybe like they're supposed to. And then they rise up to play like they're not supposed to. And again, to give you a little bit of a hint, I love how the Bible does not go into all of the salacious details. It does let us know that this party is at least enough of a party that when young Joshua, and Joshua's young at this point, when he's walking down off the mountain, the first thing he hears, he's like, oh, they're in the middle of a fight. It's combat. What kind of frat party do you have to be having that it sounds like two nations fighting? It's not good. But it's intriguing how Aaron's mistake here, it's such a simple wrong turn. And it goes something like this. Some of the God of the Bible is better than none of the God of the Bible. And my goodness, is that not a simple mistake? I mean, we have other words for that. It's called compromise. It's called syncretism. It's called a blending of all religions. It says there's multiple ways to heaven. It's not just Jesus alone. But what he does is he says, look, the God of the Bible, it's better to have some of him than none of him. It's better to have some Christianity than none Christianity. So when the people say, make this golden cow, what does Aaron try to do is he tries to hijack it. Hey, you want to worship this golden cow? That's fine. It's the God of the Bible. (laughs) I mean, you could kind of, it probably feels like a little bit like a used used car salesman that's going to die if he doesn't sell the car. Like he's highly motivated to do this well. What he's doing is he's taking pagan ritual, he's taking pagan practice, and he's trying to paste Judaism on top of it. He's taking the values and the culture and the ethic and everything that the Gentiles, the pagans would do, and he's trying to paste Christianity on top of it. And certainly we never do that today, do we? (laughs) 
I've talked about it before, but I, I, I firmly believe that when the church historians actually get around to writing, around, uh, writing about the evangelical church in America from the 80s into the 90s and almost to 2000, I suspect that's going to be the assessment of what happened in evangelicalism. That we took the values, the moorings, the culture, and we simply tried to hijack it and paste Christianity on top of it. I mean, again, just building off of Sunday school, think about how many churches would say any suffering is evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God uses sorrow for your good. In fact, we're going to hear that on the final point. But how much have we seen the churches hijacking pagan culture and trying to paste over it? And again, it's not like Aaron doesn't have a great deal of motivation. I firmly believe his life is probably on the line for this. This is not just simply some kind of academic exercise of how can we play nice between the pagans and the the Jews. We'll use Christians for our argument's sake. He's not just trying to play nice between these two divergent groups. His life's on the line. I also firmly believe that as we watch our current American culture change and change radically, we're going to see this increasingly happen increasingly often in our current American culture. I'll use a sports reference, but not for the sports. If you watch the news this week, one of the days this week was take your Bible to school day. I, I didn't know that existed, but apparently it's a thing. I didn't know. And uh, the New Orleans sports media interviewed Drew Brees, who is a very outspoken believer. He's, as best we can tell, evangelical conservative, what we would likely consider a true Christian. And somebody asked him about it. I was like, Drew, what do you think about this? And he's like, that's a great idea. If you're a Christian, you should take your Bible to school. Bible's a good thing. Love the Bible. Take the Bible. It's a good idea. Within 12 hours, the LGBTQ crew had gotten a hold of his comments and had thrashed him so badly that they cornered him the next day to force him to recant from taking the Bible. So it was amazing. He didn't address them. He didn't even talk about sin at all. He literally said, it's good that children take Bibles to school because the Bible's a good thing. And he got absolutely murdered for it. To the point where he's had to kind of hedge his answer. And kind of... I'm not saying his response was good or bad. I'm not going to comment on that. I wasn't in the circumstance on the situation. I am going to comment on that temptation that Aaron faced is going to be a temptation that we all face in an increasingly common fashion. To say there is any truth, to say that there is only God's truth, to say that there is one God and he must be worshipped according to his plan is going to be increasingly problematic. I mean, I I love that (laughs) it's not like Aaron didn't have a clear answer. Guys, he literally gave us ten biggies and you're violating the first two, obviously. No other gods, no graven images, and you want me to make a graven image of other gods. But the pressure was so high, his faith wavers, and he sins. How did we get here? It's amazing. Two simple things. 
a lack of patience, and a presence of compromise. A situation you would never have expected to have happen. A lack of patience and a presence of compromise. And here you have them in 5 and 6 having this joint worship service of sorts, worshiping the living and true God and these false idols, and it goes badly. The next section, though, as we continue through the text, is, is marvelous. It's one of my favorite sections in the entire book of, uh, of Exodus. The, really, Moses' response, 11 through 14, is probably my favorite part. But uh, the entire interaction here between God and Moses is fantastic because what it shows about our God. Remember, the primary purpose of Scripture is to teach you who God is. It is revelation. It is to reveal who God is. And this interchange here is marvelous. God knows exactly what's happening at the base of the mountain. He's outside time and space. He sees it all at once the way he wishes to. And so he knows exactly what's going on. In fact, actually, he even quotes the Israelites' answer to Moses that was just said at the bottom of the mountain. You get a sense of how this conversation's probably not going to go well from the very beginning. Verse 7, when the Lord says, go down for your people. That's the point where the husband gets home and the wife says, take your children. I don't know what they did, but it was bad and mama's done. When they're my children, I know they've been disobedient. (laughs) God says, take your people whom you brought out from the land of Egypt. That's the point where the the double red flag has gone up. Because it's like Moses is going, "I'm, I'm fairly certain I didn't do that. Fairly certain. I did not do that. I did not do the plagues. I did not do the water from the rock. I did not do the Red Sea. I did not do that. You did that, God. He's highlighting, God is highlighting Moses as the mediator here. He's set him on purpose and antithetical opposite sides. They are opposed to each other. And God says, you better go down there fast because I'm going to kill them all. They're being evil and I'm going to kill them all. In fact, actually, not only is he going to kill them all for this stiff-necked people, he gives in verse 10 perhaps one of the greatest opportunities in human history. Moses, he says, I know they're all fools that you can't stand. And you have to think, there's a part of Moses that's like, yeah, you're not wrong. You know, I have to think at some point when God's saying this, he's got people in mind. He's like, yeah, it's probably this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy. Yeah, I always have problems with those morons. Verse 10, God says, look, I'll kill them all, and I'll start over with you. I'll kill all of them, and I will fulfill all of my promises in the past to you and your family. I'll take you, your wife, your kids, your family, and I will turn you into the nation. That, my friends, is a very enticing offer. I mean, if you have any sort of kind of deep-seated bitterness raging toward your people, that's not the promise you want to be hearing because it's like, yes, get rid of them all. Instead, Moses gives the most shocking answer, really. Don't do it. But it showcases so much for us here who God is. Moses' answer, verses 11 through 14, shows us that forgiveness is first and foremost about God himself. It's not actually ultimately about me. I mean, as much as I love to be the center of the world, I love to be the center of the universe. You do too. We're humans. This is what we are. I mean, I'm 
40 years old, I was raised in a generation where I was told I was the center of everything. Moses deals with forgiveness and God's patience and deals with sin, but he deals with it entirely in the realm of God's character. Verse 11. It's not, why does your wrath burn hot against your people because you don't know what you're doing? That is not the question he's asking. (laughs) The Lord's just told him what they're doing. In fact, actually, Moses doesn't know what's happening other than what God just said. I mean, when they're worshiping a golden calf, you have to think Moses is doing damage control in his head going, how bad is this really? What are they doing? Like, really? I, I, I don't know what's going on. His question here is not, what sin have they committed? He's actually acknowledging, is your wrath surpassing your power to bring them here? Has your anger superseded your glory? Is your anger so big that it's drowning out your glory so far? Look what you did to the Egyptians. Look what you did to the sea. Look what you did to all of these marvelous things. Are you really going to do that, God? Verse 12 If you do that, what are the nations going to say? They're going to say, look, this God is so powerful, he brought them all out just so he could kill them all. He's petty. He's vindictive. He is capricious, rotten God. In fact, actually, verse 13, they're going to say he's a God that can't even keep his own promises. Lord, you promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You promised that you would give them the land. You promised that you would multiply their offspring. You made these promises, God. You have to keep your promises. And after Moses gives this marvelous response in 11 through 13, the Lord relents his anger. He's he's watched the faith just beautifully radiate from Moses. Obviously, the Lord knows what they're doing. Obviously, the Lord knew what Moses' response was going to be. Obviously, the Lord has done all this. It's to showcase his glory. It's important to remember that forgiveness is first and foremost about God. It's what we're going to hear this evening from Romans 8. Why is it that you can know that your sins are forgiven? Is it because you're a good person? No, that's a terrible, terrible reason to have assurance. Is it because, man, I've just had this great life. I've never done anything evil since. Or the evil things I've done since I came to know the Lord are really small. I don't worship golden calves anymore. I just worship my wallet. No, what Moses is getting at here is, Lord, you have to deal with sin because of who you are, not because of who we are. You don't deal with Israel's sin because of Israel. You deal with Israel's sin because of God. This is going to be the pattern that's going to show up when the Lord Jesus shows up. It's the same hope that we have today. How do you know you go to heaven? It is not because I am good. It's because of God. My appeal is to Christ. Christ has satisfied the law. God, you must keep your promises. Now, for some of us in the room, there are some that will always struggle with having a tender conscience and being depressed and discouraged and being spiritually weary. They will have the voice of the evil one in their ear and the voice of their flesh in their ear constantly telling them how bad they are, how wicked they are, and that they are just constantly just berating. If that is you, remember your salvation is about God's glory, 
So you go back to his promises. He's never going to leave you and forsake you. He's never going to turn his back on you if you are his child. He can't because of his glory. He can't just cast you aside. God deals with sin for his glory first and foremost. This is a little bit of a reorientation for those of us that were raised to be the center of the universe. I mean, I I know some of us, we think all of creation has come to its pinnacle in me. And so all of creation has really been telling the story of how I would have my sins forgiven because it's all about me. And here God is providing a healthy corrective to say, no, it's about his glory. It's about him. story doesn't end there, though. It's great. Moses has this great interchange with God, in essence, pleads God's mercy so that he would delay his anger, and then goes down the mountain with the two tablets. These tablets uh, are the record of the covenant. Uh, They are the equivalent today, what we think of as like a marriage license. It's the, the proof that the covenant was actually binding and that it's true. Moses comes down the mountain. Remember, Joshua's been waiting halfway down. They start marching down the mountain, and you hear the party going on, and it is wild. Uh, again, Josh, Josh was like, I, I think there are people killing each other. Uh, no, no, that's not what they're doing. <sighs> Moses gets to the bottom and obviously his anger burns hot and he throws the tablets on the ground. You've probably heard sermons that have incorrectly done this. Moses does not lose his temper. This is not, he gets to the foot of the mountain, he sees the evil that are doing, and he has a little temper tantrum. And because he can't control himself, he breaks the covenant. That's not at all what's happening. What he's doing is a sign action to the people to say, look, you had an agreement with your God. And the proof of your agreement with your God are these two stone tablets. And guess what? He didn't break it. But you did. It's an object lesson in front of them to see they violated God's covenant with them. Again, remember, they've just said, hey, yeah, we'll do everything you say. Yeah, good. That's great. I'm glad it lasted for two months. Oh, it didn't last that long. And then Moses follows it up. He grabs the calf, chucks it in the fire. He burns it up. And uh, you get to see he actually takes the ashes and the lingering parts of the metal, grinds it up into a fine powder, chucks it into the water source. What has become of your God now? Where will this God end up? After you drink him, your body processes him, and then he gets passed. That is absolutely what's taking place here. The Lord is mocking their faults. God, look, look how mighty your God is. He ends up in the dung heap. Good choice, Israel. Well done. Excellent decision. He can't even end up out of the privy, much less help you. You get the great conversation between Moses and Aaron. (laughs) What do the people do to you? I love that's his opening question. That's Moses' opening question. You have to understand the relationship with Israel is very complicated. When the first question is not, what did you do? It's what did they make you do? What did they do to you? You get Aaron's just laughable answer. I just threw the gold in and this is what happened. Hmm. 
until you get to the final part where it gets really difficult, doesn't it? Where Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? And out of a whole bunch of tribes and a whole bunch of people, you effectively get one family. This is we are. And he goes, great, I've got a job for you. Go get your sword. Go through the camp and ask people who they follow. And if the answer is Yahweh, you spare them. And if the answer is anything else, you kill them. That's our best understanding of what takes place here. It's not just random murdering. It's killing those that are opposed to the Lord so that you get to see. Again, what does it show us about God? You get to see the Lord loves his people so much. He will not let impurity and evil continue. I mean, think about the discipline that they are going through here as a nation. They have their false God ground up before their eyes, thrown into the water source so that you then have to drink it. You have your own family members going through and killing people all over the camp. That day, what does it say? 3,000 men died? Good, safe assumption is that's probably 10,000 people were killed that day. That is a lot of human blood spilled over it. And oh yeah, by the way, then the plague comes and the Lord's still not done. When I show up, oh, I will account for their sins. What is God showing? It's not that he's a petty God. It's not that he, he can't be pleased. Certainly Jesus has done that. He's showing that he loves his people so much he's not going to give up on us. He's not going to let us continue in impurity forever. He's not going to let us continue to, as we would say here, act the fool. He loves us so much he's, he's going to continue to work in us. I love also how you get to see the difference in punishments. You have for those that do not worship the Lord God, they are cast away into eternal darkness. They're murdered right there. Not murdered. They're killed right there on the spot. But for his saints, they are preserved, but they're disciplined so that they change. Again, it's easy for us to, to laugh at this. Golden calf, those those fools. The height of foolishness to worship a calf. I only worship my luxury automobile. It's much better. All joking, we do the same things, do we not? I mean, we, we have, in essence, struggled with these same battles. And there's, again, a good reminder that the Lord loves us so much, he will not let us continue in impurity forever. One, that's good news because it means that when we die, we are sanctified perfectly. We're made perfectly ready for the full enjoyment of God forever. But it also means that he disciplines us in the meantime. He loves us so much. He does not just save us and then let us be fools for the rest of our lives. Again, this is the beauty of seeing the triune God in salvation. Loves us so much that he sends Jesus... And then loves us so much that Jesus leaves so the Spirit comes. Totally different tasks. Loves us so much that Jesus pays for sin, sends us to heaven forever, but loves us so much that the Spirit comes to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to make us holy. In terms of application for us, I would say simply, one is be wary of those simple, easy decisions that have led us into impurity. The Lord loves you. 
loves you more than you will ever understand. And part of how much he loves you is he will not let you stay that way. He will cleanse you. He will clean you. I come to realize early on in my life, I, I would much rather learn the easy way. I would much rather, think about it, you learn humility one of two ways. You either humble yourself or God does it for you. He seems to be far more thorough. I'd much rather learn the easy way. Think about how much this is, is that reoccurring theme. These are a stiff-necked people who do not listen. May it be that we, as we go from here this day, we may marvel at how holy our God is, marvel at how generous our God is, marvel at how faithful our God is, and as a result, work hard to listen to what he has to say. And I suspect that if we do that, he's going to be faithful to us, and we will not find ourselves in situations where we wake up and spiritually go, where am I? How did I get to this place? We will not find ourselves following the path of the prodigal son who realizes, I hate my life. I don't like this anymore. I want a different one. Because God's faithful to us and gives us holy wisdom in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth, your kindness, and your love. Thank you for Jesus who died for us, was raised for us. Thank you for your spirit who sanctifies us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.